On this episode, we chat with Joe Boyd and Sean Critchfield about their improv and acting training and how it translates both on and off stage. I think you'll be surprised by how deep things get in this one. Hope you enjoy it. You are listening to the Rebel Storytellers Podcast. Rebel Storytellers. Candid conversations with dreamers, doers, and creative problem solvers. Hosted by Brad Wise and Steve Fuller. A wee podcast made in Cincinnati, Ohio. The improv stuff, um, talk about that for a second. I, I don't know if people get improv. You get on the stage, you're with a group of people. Just talk about that process a little bit. I'm actually going to turn it back on Sean. Okay. So the story in one of your poems about your your friend or your brother, the recoil of my rifle, mm-hmm. so the sniper, yeah, and how that just became routine. I think there's something to improv and acting where it's just once you've studied it and you get there, there's a big part of it that's just – yeah, this is it's what I do, and I'm sure. Yeah. Sure, there's a section in the in a poem that I wrote where I say, um, maybe you're a sniper one who's still trying to figure out what he's going to find and make in that shot. What did you feel? The recoil of my rifle, and that's a true story. It's a friend of mine who was a sniper for the um, for the Marine Corps, and part of the training was for them to hold a rifle and look through a scope at various pictures. And the pictures over the course of the training went from, you know, really bad guys with, you know, muggers and people with ski masks to women and children and things like that. And they would look at these pictures and they would say, what do you feel? And the sniper would respond, the recoil of my rifle. And he said that it doesn't make you heartless. It doesn't make you unfeeling. It only makes you heartless and unfeeling when you're looking through a scope. That the second you take that scope away, your humanity can come back, but they condition you that when you look at that scope, suddenly there you are. And I think that it's the same type of thing that with... You know, we don't become heartless killers, but we become kind of um, improv robots. You know, instinct is the training you remember first. People say that you're born with these instincts, but instincts can always be rewritten. You know, if you throw a punch at someone who has no martial arts training, they're going to probably flinch. You know, if you throw a punch at someone who's done multiple hours of blocking, they're going to naturally block. So instinct is just the training we remember first. And so eventually that training takes over and it becomes your instinct to know how to improv. You know, there's this really great study where they took guys and they were doing MRIs of their brain while they were freestyling uh, hip hop performers and they're freestyling. And they kept hitting the same points of their brain. But what they turned off was the ability to censor and it just turned into complete impulse. And they said that's the portions of the brain that were lighting up, that they were successful when they turned off their ability to censor and just went. So do you guys, do you think when you improv, like are you thinking about the next thing you're going to say or does it just come out of your mouth? Because I always, I've, I've taught public speaking before and I've always, it's just interesting because I've always said that the best public speakers, words are coming out of their mouths, but they're also thinking so they can adjust and they're looking at the audience and they're reading feedback. And it seems like an improv, you're oh, yeah. doing the exact opposite. Well, I think that like I do the spoken word thing and I'm very much doing that. Okay. I'm very much like uh, trying to read the audience and whether or not they want, you know, like I, if any of you have seen Anis Mojgani, he, he usually stands with his hands in his pockets and sways a little and he's very calm and he and he can pull you in but he's also I've also seen him be ferocious on stage and I think he's a great example of that that he can read his audience and he can see when he's losing them because sometimes what you need is just a shot of energy to get him back so I have seen Anis Mojani 
I cast him in the movie that I wrote and directed called A Strange Brand of Happy. And he did his poem, Come Closer, which I'm going to play for you now from the movie. And a quick side note, for about 95 to 99% of the people who saw the movie, this is their favorite scene. And I didn't write one word of it. Pretty funny. And true. Because I think Anis has magical powers that when he speaks, something mystical happens between your heart and mind. Let me know if you agree. How are y'all doing? Good. Come closer. Come into this. You are quite the beauty. If no one has ever told you that before, know that right now. You are quite the beauty. There is joy in how your mouths dance with your teeth. Your smiles are simply signs of how sacred your life actually is. He made you, and he was happy. You make the Lord happy. Come into this. Come closer. Know that something softer than us, but just as holy, planted pieces of himself into our feet that we might one day dance our way back. Know that you are almost home. Come just a little bit closer. There are birds beating their wings beneath your breastplates. Gentle sparrows that ache to sing. Come aching hearts, come soldiers of joy, dormant of truth. Know that my heart was too big for my body, so I let it go. And most days, this world is thin to me, to the point where I'm just another cloud, forgetting another flock of swans. But believe me when I tell you that my soul has managed to squeeze itself into such narrow spaces. Place your hands beneath your heads when you sleep tonight, and perhaps you will find it there, making beauty as we sleep, as we dream, as we turn over. When we turn over in the ground, may the ghosts that we have asked answers of do that turning, kneading us into crumbs of light and into this thing-loved thing called life. Come into it. Come, you wooden museums, gentle tigers, little giants. I see teacups upside down, glowing across your grins. Your hearts are like my hands. Some days all they do is tremble. I am like you. I am like you. I too at times am filled with so much fear. So much fear, but like a hallway, must find the strength to walk through it. Walk through this with me. Through this church of blood, bone, and muscle that is ours, there is a doorknob glowing like chance before you. Grab it, turn, and pull. Step through. Back straight. Chin up. Eyes open, hearts loud. Walk through this with me. Walk through this with me. Thank you. So back to our conversation. We started talking about improv games. And at events, whenever we do mic checks, we play a game called 185. And rather than explaining that, let's just jump back in. What's the game you play with the refrigerator? Or is that part of 185? When I do 185 and I want to start off easy for myself, I'll say, give me something in your refrigerator, because I usually had that before. And so that just gets, I mean, it's not cheating, because sometimes people will say things I've never thought of in in the refrigerator. Butter. Butter? 185 butters (laughs) walk into a bar, (laughs) and the bartender says, you can't serve butters in this bar. And they say, "That's, that's wrong no matter how you slice it. (laughs) <laughs> 185 butters walk into a bar. Bartender says, we don't serve 185 butters here. And they say, that's too bad. We are going to spread around some dough. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
And it's the point right that the jokes are just like kind of okay. That's kind of the game, right? That people are just like, oh. Yeah, yeah. they're puns, which is the worst form of humor. <laughs> yeah. So it's just about selling a bad joke. Uh-huh. And I think it's also the idea is that a lot of times in improv, um, uh, especially in comedy sports improv where you're doing games like that, the game becomes about who's going to mess it up, who's not going to be able to succeed. So they're less interested in what the humor of the joke is and whether or not it works. Does that make sense? So like uh, yeah. they're, they're more impressed at the fact that, that you pulled off getting something to relate to that topic than they are whether or not the joke is funny. Um, and again, I think that comes back to that don't try to be funny, just try to get to the word. And you know, there's a game called Alphabet where um, each sentence have to be, has to begin with the next letter of the alphabet. And so you're given a situation and you go back and forth. And what the audience is waiting for, they don't care about the scene, they don't really care what you're saying, they're waiting for someone to mess it up. Can we try that game? Yeah, I'll give it a try. What do you guys want us to give us a topic? You guys are bricklayers. How about that? Okay. <laughs> Another long day. Bricks. Could you hand me that uh, that spade? Don't I ever love handing you stuff, Sean? Every day, that's your job. This guy hands me stuff. Four hours a day. Good night. Really? Four hours already? Hell yeah. I don't know, man. I think maybe it's time we looked for a new job. Just just don't. We're almost done. Keep focused on the task. You're right. You're right. That's what we should do. Like every time, this is what you do. Man, I, I don't know what to tell you. I just think that we're bricklayers. I think we could do so much more. We could be improvists. <laughs> Not on my watch. We're, we're bricklayers 100%. Oh, really? So now I work for you? Please. Quit. Quit, Joe. Just quit. Really, Sean? Stop. And that was saying no, so I just totally <laughs> shut Joe down. <laughs> I couldn't remember what was out there, so it worked out well. <laughs> so there you go. If we were awesome, we'd still be going. After playing around a little bit more, Sean goes pretty deep on us, waxing poetic about presence. Listen close, because I think there are some nuggets in this next part. There's Paul Sills is like one of the forefathers of improv, and he has a, a, a great quote. He says, I have succeeded where Shakespeare failed. I have created theater of the heart, actors taking care of each other in the instant. And I remember that no matter what I'm doing, no matter it, it extends beyond uh, improv for me. If I'm on stage, it, it's I'm in an ensemble production and it doesn't matter how many people are there. If I if it was just me on stage by myself, my ensemble would be my audience, you know, and, and that idea of actors taking care of each other in the instant is so important to me. As you're mentioning that, do you find yourself taking care of people generally? Like you see someone struggling in day to day life and you try to rescue them in that moment because that's your improv training? I would broaden the question for you if I'm allowed to for Sean of just your yeah. your acting training. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, and I'm glad we broadened it to the acting training because I can pull more from that. That's what I've spent the, the you know the the bulk of my life studying. I studied Strasbourg, and I teach privately, and I direct, and you know, and and even the spoken word. I think that I'm as successful because of my acting background. But there's this great story that um, Patsy Roddenberg tells, um, where she says that she was on the show. 
and it was this lady who was hosting this radio show and she was known for being quite a vicious woman and they had this guy who had just written this book that was all antics of actors and it was just picking on actors and making fun of actors and she was there defending them and afterwards this woman who it was widely known that she her 17 year old son had committed suicide afterwards she said I'm so glad that you were defending actors because in my grief the only people that could walk in my door and be with me and be present with me were my friends who were actors and it's because we train ourselves to be present so just before we did this podcast I've this is my first time in Cincinnati and I was at a bookstore and I was heading back and there was a woman there who was panhandling and she kept looking for people's eyes and and I told myself that she wants to be present with you that's what she wants and so I made the point to stop and talk to her and I just said hi what's your name and the look of shock on her face that I would ask her name and she said Rochelle and then I just asked her a few questions and you know I said wow it's cold what do you do in the winter and and we had a conversation and I think that you know at the end I gave I think I gave her a dollar I don't you know I'm a performer I don't make a lot of money (laughs) but I gave her a dollar but in that moment, I can tell you that what was more important to her was that I spent the time to be present and treat her like a person um, than any amount of money that, it, well, that's not fair. She probably <laughs> would have been thrilled again. You know, if I'd handed her a $100 bill, I probably could have ignored her. But you know, <laughs> but it was it was better than the dollar I gave her to just spend that time with her. And, and yeah, I was uncomfortable and I wanted to defend and I wanted to do things in my body to not be present with her. But instead of doing those defensive postures and instead of pretending to look at my, my screen on my phone, I connected with another human and I got to be present with them. And that will remain one of my favorite memories that I had. So by this point in the conversation, and a lot of it I had to leave out of this podcast, I was convinced that Sean was one of the cooler people I had ever met. But then he got even cooler when we started talking about his wilderness survival training and how that connects to creativity. Check it out. I studied uh, um, primitive skills in wilderness survival, and I I did a um, a retreat where I spent a period of time in the woods uh, living off the land. One of the guys there uh, is an instructor that I became really good friends with. Um, they told me that when I left that there was going to be like a reboot period. There's going to be a period that was that I would struggle with going back. And I said, you know, really, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to be because now I'm this, you know, the peaceful child of the earth. <laughs> now that I've learned the primitive coyote ways that I no longer understand the giant machine that is the city. You know, like it was this kind of absurd notion. And uh, so I, I said that to him and he's, you know, he laughed and he said, do you want the science? And I said, yes, of course I do. And he said, well. In biofeedback, there are different states of awareness, and beta is what we exist in, and beta is the lowest potential for learning and creativity. And beta happens when you get into a rut, and people hear that and they think it's bad, but it's not bad. It just means that, you know, if you were in a survival situation, if you ever went to beta, it's because all of your needs are met. You're getting to the point where you're just hanging out in the woods, you know? So you would go to this beta state. That's what it's for. Um, alpha is the, so we live in modern society, 90% of people live in beta. You know, we, we know exactly what our day is going to be like. We know where our water's coming from, where our food's coming from, how we're going to dress. And then uh, anytime you're put into a situation, so in a city, for example, you know, if a car clips by you and almost hits you, you know, you would immediately be thrust into alpha. If you're in a dark alleyway and you see shadows moving, you would be thrust into alpha. And alpha is the highest potential for learning and creativity. It's a survival state. So if I'm an alpha in the woods, I want to be adaptable and I want to be able to learn from my environment. So it behooves me to be an alpha. And so um, the transition from alpha to beta 
can take months or weeks as where beta and alpha can take minutes, seconds, depending on the situation. So the longer I stay in alpha, the harder it is for me to get back to beta. And so when I was coming back, one of the side effects of the transition is anxiety. And so I was going through this anxiety because I was downgrading from alpha to beta. And it was like I walked into the Newark airport and I thought I was going to hyperventilate. You know, when I first got back to Vegas, I went up to the mountains and I slept in a tent for a few days because I couldn't deal with the noise and I couldn't deal with the city. The rhythms were all wrong. And I really believe that, you know, you get someone who's really hooked on working out or someone who's really hooked on yoga, those things accelerate them into alpha. So when they don't do it for a long time and they start to get you know, irritable, it's because they're they're downgrading from alpha to beta and they need to go back and do it again to get themselves back up into alpha. So I think it's a, a very positive addiction, if you will. Do you want to hear my dumb guy version of that? Yeah. This is so, let me, let me see what you think about this. This is what I've always thought about life is that most of us are kind of sleepwalking through life. And the reason why we love things secretly like snow days and power outages is because it snaps us from our routine. So a few years ago, we had some crazy windstorms in Cincinnati, power went out all over the place, and you saw people getting out of their houses, meeting their neighbors, coming together, grilling out. And even though we don't like losing power, there's something about that disruption that frees us to live and create and it's why we love vacations because it breaks the routine. And then when we come back, we're kind of depressed because we're back to the same old routine. Mm-hmm. Is it is that sort of? No, I completely agree. And, and isn't it funny that when you were snapped into alpha that all of a sudden you became more social and wanted to interact right. with the people in your tribe? Right. You know, that, that it again forces you into the sense of, of – heightened awareness and presence that suddenly yeah. you become present with the people around you. And I think, I think that's absolutely true. Talking about like the technology, I sometimes find it hard to find the time, the energy to create. Mm-hmm. And it seems like using some of what you've experienced and learned in life, you've maybe developed some techniques to just have space to create. So mm-hmm. if people are listening and they want to create, they want to be creative people, but they just, they can't find the time. When they sit down, their brain is racing, they can't find the energy. How do people just start creating? Um, well, okay, I think there's a, a few parts to that. And I think that first, the first thing that I, I would say to someone in that situation is, is that um, you do have time. And you, you know, that's the first question is, how do I carve out time? You do have time and you can carve it out. And it can, it can, it doesn't have to be that you're going to go, you know, cross stitch. It can be something that you are compelled to do that you have time to do. Turn off the TV and then get in front of your computer screen and, you know, open up a paint program and and do something there, do something like that. You know, Um, people are so afraid of this technology thing. Coming back to that again very briefly. And one of the things that I love is that Socrates admonished the written word. He said that it would atrophy our ability to remember. And so every new technology at first is opposed, you know? And so um, I think that secondly, I would say just create and, you know, and, and do it badly, but do it, do it as well as you can and make something, make something that when you're done, you've created something. We are at our core. We are all creators. We all desire to make and, and form something. And, and it doesn't have to be good. It has to be a form of expression. And I think, you know, 
literally write out a contract with yourself and say, I'm going to carve out 10 minutes to do this. And when I do it, I'm going to turn my internal editor off. I'm not going to have an opinion of my work. I'm just going to do it and then and then sign that contract and do it. You know, and there's a great book that I read called No Plot, No Problem, and it's how to write a novel and a 50,000 word novel, which is roughly the size of Catcher in the Rye in 30 days. And I did it and I succeeded. And one of the first steps that I felt I succeeded in doing it, no one will ever read it. It will never see the light of day. It was hideous, but I did it. And uh, one of the first things you did was you you signed a contract that you weren't going to edit anything, that you, were, you weren't here to write the next great American novel. You were here to finish one. And that after you do this, then you can start honing your skill to write the great American. But prove to yourself that you can crank a novel out. And, and so prove to yourself that you can carve out 15 minutes and you can turn off your editor and you can make something. And, you know, I mean, if you really think about it, our kids, you know, they bring us, my nephews will draw me pictures and, and, you know, and you're like, he's so talented. Do you just see how talented he is? When really it's like, you know, a stick figure with spaghetti <laughs> hair, you know what I mean? And, and when I look at it, it's this masterpiece, you know, and and it's the it's the care and the time that he put into it and it's the fact that he took time out of his schedule of crayons and cartoons to draw this for me and bring it to me and that's what makes it valuable so and you know we talked about it much earlier after 10,000 hours of doing it crappy you'll probably be really good at it you know? I wish you were my uncle <laughs> 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 let's let's write a contract. It, yeah. It just it it feels like turning that editor part of your brain off is so important. That as you're writing, you're not stopping and critiquing and feeling bad about yourself because you're not writing the next great American novel or you know, it's like we we don't allow ourselves to create because we're our harshest critic in the process of creating, mm-hmm. you know. So turning that editor off feels like a big deal. And I think that that really is, you're not going to get it perfect. I think that it's going to be something that you, every time you do it and you have to, you know, correct the behavior every time it comes up until it becomes normal to, you know, no, no, I'm not going to judge. I'm going to keep going. No, it doesn't matter what it looks like. I'm going to keep going. And then eventually that will become habitual. A lot of this reminds me of Julia Cameron stuff. Do you know that? The yeah. artist way? Yeah. So, Absolutely. so Brad's done that. And um, have you done that? Mm-mm. You should. You should. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the bookstore and buy it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Only if I can do it perfectly. (laughs) You you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, for anyone listening, it's well well worth it to just, like, submit to it. So I did did the Dave Ramsey thing to get out of debt, and that guy rubs me the wrong way every way possible. (laughs) But I just said, going in, I'm just going to submit to this until I get out of debt. Mm -hmm. And I did it. We got out of debt. I don't do it now. But (laughs) um, And the same thing with Julia Cameron. I'm like... I'm just going to trust that this lady can help me be more creative and I'm going to submit to her system for 30 days. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I go back to it. I don't do it all the time, but I go back to it when I feel stuck for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's, it, I think you'd really enjoy it. And yes, you can do it perfectly, but sometimes mm-hmm. doing it perfectly is they're going to say, do this imperfectly. And so that's the catch-22 is that you'll want to do it perfectly, so you have to do it the way she says. No, you know? I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> I was just reading um, uh, Bird by Bird. And she has a whole thing in there oh, about yeah. perfectionism and, and how it ruins everything. And I was like, that's wrong. <laughs> that last bit there, our pro bono plug for The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, that's one that I cannot recommend enough. It literally changed my life. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, maybe you heard the episode about failure. The Artist's Way is one of the things that transformed how I view my creative life. 
All right, that's it for this episode. My name is Brad Wise. My co-host is Steve Fuller. Thanks to Jim Zartman of Talkie Records for all of our music, and thanks to Uncle Critchfield for hanging out. And if you haven't got tickets yet for Joe's one-man show, Luke, you should. It's on March 28th here in Cincinnati. Go to rebelstorytellers.com to get tickets, sign up for our newsletter, and subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep creating.